We're going to be right there in Romans chapter 8. I'd love for you to join me there for the next few minutes. I'm glad that you're here. Glad we get to study, get to worship together, get to reflect on some of Paul's encouraging words in probably one of the greatest chapters in uh, all of Scripture, at least in the way we read the Bible, you know, Paul is dealing with some things here that are so encouraging and he's helping us as we struggle with some different things. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you once again to Hoover. You're blessing us by your presence and we thank you for coming. Come and see us again soon. I love those images I've seen, you know, a little in person, some online, where there have been family members who've been separated from a loved one, maybe because he or she has been deployed for some extended period of time. And that reunion idea, but, but, but actually just prior to the reunion, sometimes you see, these, you, can, you can see this, some of you have experienced this, you see the, the, the look on someone's face, a mom or a dad, a husband or a wife, son or daughter. The look on their on their face, on their faces as, as they wait for the loved one to come home. Like at the, at the airport, maybe they haven't seen him or her yet, but, but they're anticipating it. And so there's that, the, the craning of the neck, you know, you know the, the universal posture of waiting, of looking, of anticipating, of being excited about something that you're about to... Re- see, you know? The, the word here Paul uses in Romans 8, in verse 25, which is the verse just prior to what we're going to study more closely, he uses the word wait. And, and that word wait, in fact, one of, the, one of the definitions of the word, or one of the descriptive phrases in the definition of the Greek word translated wait is to crane the neck. I mean, it's, you know what I'm talking about. You know what he's talking about here, right? been away from somebody for a while, you're at the airport, you're, you're, and you're, you're, you're looking up the escalator, and you cannot wait to see her face, his face. In Romans 8, here's, here's the thing, we're going to look at these five verses, you know, Romans 8, 26 through 30, right? But in order for us to understand that little paragraph, we've got to go back a little bit and see what Paul's talking about. What he's talking about is, this is a context of, of struggle and suffering, of, of struggling and suffering. It's a, it's a, Paul's dealing with some Christians who are trying to figure out, okay, we became Christians and we thought, you know, God's going to bless us. He's going he's to take care of us. But sometimes what we experience doesn't match up with what we anticipated. It, what we're going through right now doesn't seem like... like we didn't think we were going to go through this. Why is this so hard? And so in Romans 8, starting in verse 18, um, he says, look, in fact, if you get your Bible there, just look back or listen as I read a little bit of this. Romans 8, 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, this may sound a little bit familiar because it's some of the same wording that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, a text we looked at last Sunday morning. So this... Is, is meant to be a continuation of that idea uh, because Paul is exploring some of the same themes here. But he says, you know, I've, I've, um, I've studied this and I've come to the conclusion that what we're suffering now can't even begin to compare to what we've got waiting on us. It's going to be revealed to us. And then he uses that word, which we looked at a little bit last week, that word, that verb, groans, 
He uses it a couple of times. But he says in verse 19 first, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing. That's that idea I'm talking about. The craning of the neck, the, 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 the eyes, the, the looking, the searching, the anticipation. Right? The creation, I think he's talking about the subhuman creation, the, the, the planet. He's maybe speaking somewhat metaphorically here about the planet longing for, uh, of anticipating. The creation is waiting, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, the dirt beneath us, the trees and the rocks. They are longing to be set free, right? That's, that's what Paul's saying here. They're tired of this kind of existence in this sin-cursed kind of environment that we have. And he says, verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the creation, the subhuman creation itself is, is longing for, to, is longing to be released, to be free, to be able to live in the way that God created it to live, you know? And he says in 22, this is where he uses that verb groaning. 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I think of this verse a lot of times when, when, I, when I see you know, natural disasters, these, these things that aren't the way they were supposed to be. You, you hear of a tsunami or, or wildfires or earthquakes or hurricanes or tornadoes or, or whatever it is. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. The earth, and, and you see the devastation. That the, that's the earth's way of saying. That's the earth's way of, of groaning, of, of expressing his dissatisfaction. That's an, that's an expression of that kind of underlying tension there. That's what Paul's talking about here, I think. The whole creation has been groaning since Genesis 3. But Paul says, verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, as we crane our necks for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the, the creation is going to be redeemed. Our bodies are going to be redeemed. We anticipate this. In this hope, we were saved. But then verse 25, he says, for if, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. We crane our necks for it with patience and maybe sometimes with a little bit of lack of patience so, so you see what Paul's doing here in those verses and then that leads us into our study here verse 26 likewise Paul says you know based on based on this we uh, we've got a companion who helps us deal with this so before I read this again for us this morning, just understand what, what Paul's dealing with here is something you are experiencing now in some, to some degree. You know, some of you are experiencing chronic difficulties and struggles in your relationships, in your physical bodies, in your, in your tension at work, your, your conflict with others perhaps. And, and you're, there's some groaning going on there as you anticipate being freed from this kind of existence. That's what Paul is addressing here. And so that sense in which the earth itself groans, in which you groan, is this tension between, as, as I said, I think last Sunday and many times before, it's that tension between the already but not yet, the, the now and not yet. The, 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 
tension we experience between, or that we feel between our current experience and what we anticipate. So God has worked and is working, but will one day fully work. So in that kind of tension, we groan. And we have a hard time sometimes praying as we should. So let me read these five verses again for us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And so sometimes we don't know what to pray. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I think I know what your response would be. If I did, you had a hard time praying? Ever? Have you ever been on your knees or lying in bed? Or, and your prayer goes something like this. What in the world? Ever prayed a prayer like that? God, what? Why? What in the what? What are you? What are you doing? I don't. I don't even know what to say. You ever prayed a prayer like that? I think that's what Paul's talking about here. Especially during times of struggle, I think. And, and, and that especially is the context of, of Romans 8, I believe, is Paul's saying sometimes the, the tension you feel between what you're experiencing and what you think you ought to be experiencing is almost overwhelming. And it's at those times you find yourself lying flat on your back saying, I want to pray, but I don't know what to say. I have no idea, no clue. Lord, help me. Maybe that's the, that's the prayer. Maybe that's the cry. It's just, help me. Help me pray better. Help me know what to say. Help me know what you're doing. Help me know. Help me, help me, help me believe that somehow in all this mess, your, your hand is there, you know? Help me see that, because I don't see it right now. These groanings that the earth expresses through the, the, the natural catastrophes, that's, sometimes that, that's a pretty good metaphor for, for what your heart has gone through. Your heart is a tsunami, you know? It's an earthquake. It's, it's quaking, you know? It's, it's groaning, to use Paul's, Paul's word here. And at that time, at that time, especially at that time, I think it's all the time, but especially at those times, the Spirit comes along Beside us. Same word here, by the way, in Romans 8, 26, where he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. <clears throat> uh, Luke 10. When uh, the Lord goes to the house of Mary and Martha. And Mary's in the kitchen working. Martha's, Martha's in the kitchen working. Mary's at the feet of Jesus, you know. She's being taught by him. 
And Martha comes out of the kitchen with fire in her eyes. You remember that story? She says, she says to the Lord, Would you tell her, my sister, to get in the kitchen and help me? Remember that? I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but the word, the word wait is, the word help is there. She says, I need her to come in here and help me. Same, same word here. And I think it's kind of fascinating that, that Paul says, likewise, the Spirit, if I can be a little bit, if I take a little leeway with the text here, the Spirit comes into the kitchen to help us. But really, that's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the Lord comes into the closet. The Spirit comes into the closet. The, 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 the Spirit comes in there and there and Again, allow me a little leeway here. The Spirit comes there and lies beside you in bed. I don't want to speak disrespectfully here, but, but the Spirit lies there and helps you in your weakness. The Spirit is there with you in your prayer closet, wherever that is. He, he comes along beside you. And that's, you know, He's called that. He's called the different translations of this, the comforter. Remember that one? It's a parakletos is the word. And, and it's, it has a couple of words there to, you've probably heard this description before, it's a verb to call. And para, the preposition there means beside of, you know, and it's, it's where we get this kind of etymological definition to call beside, but it's stronger than that. But it, but it, it does mean that. It means more than that. But, it, but it's this idea of the Spirit coming along beside us, you know? What's He doing beside us? He's praying the prayer you would pray if you knew everything God knew about your situation. I think I got that from Tim Keller. I got it from somebody. But I think it's a pretty good description of what happens when the Spirit comes along beside us. He helps us well, we don't, we, don't, so we don't do it. He prays the prayer for us that we would pray if we knew everything He knew. That's what He's doing. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's just so awesome to think. Lord, I'm groaning here. Uh, sometimes it's inexpressible. Sometimes I say words. Sometimes we say words. Sometimes we don't say words at all. In fact, there's some argument here among scholars when it says in verse 26 that the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There's, a, there's some, I don't know, there's some debate here, translation differences here, uh, about the underlying Greek here that, that might mean something that's expressed without words, groanings without words. Or it could mean groanings with words but words that are inadequate to the task. I don't know which, which is true. I don't think it really matters. The ESV that I'm reading from says groaning's too deep for words. I kind of get a sense that that's what Paul is trying to tell us, that, that we pray, we use some words, and sometimes we just sit there and we cry. Or we go to the Psalms. We express some anger. Some doubt, some confusion. Sometimes we use words and sometimes we don't. But the Spirit comes beside us 
It comes into the kitchen with us. It comes into the prayer closet with us. And he intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. He expresses what we would express if we knew everything that he knew. The Spirit comes and he helps us. A beautiful thing. You've got to love that. If you believe in this, you know, if, you, if you're a Christian and, you, and, and you're, you know, you're, um, you're somebody who takes the Word of God seriously, this ought to help you a lot, especially in those times where you're experiencing what Paul seems to be addressing here, you know. You're struggling with confusion, doubt, worry, anxiety, and all that. And you want to pray, but you don't feel like praying. You want to pray, but you're too angry to pray. You want to pray, but you're too sad to pray. You're just trying your best to say something. God gets the message because of the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit knows our hearts, and the Spirit knows the mind of God. That's what he says here. He, in verse 27, he who searches hearts, your heart, mine, he knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So God knows your own heart. God knows the mind of the Spirit. There's this perfect kind of, kind of correlation here in this moment, especially when we don't know what in the world we're doing or what God is doing, for that matter. When you don't know how to pray. You know, this is a famous verse. What happens with famous verses is sometimes they get misused and they get abused. Uh, and, and I'm talking about Romans 8, 28. This is maybe one of the most famous verses in the Bible, right? Certainly from Paul. And, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And man, it's so tempting to kind of pluck that verse out of its context and make it say all sorts of stuff. <coughs> we do that a lot as Christians. We can't help it. We ought to try a little bit better to help it. But you see, in the context here, what he's doing, this is in the context of suffering, man, and of confusion, of doubt, of not knowing how to pray, not knowing what God is doing, all this stuff going on, and this groaning and this waiting and this anticipating and all this tension, you know, that we're experiencing. And we don't know what to pray, but the Spirit comes along beside us and he helps us to pray. And then, and then the same idea, it's really saying the same thing in different ways, but when we struggle like that, here's the confidence that we have. When we are struggling to pray, <coughs> and when we don't know what to pray, we don't know what God is doing, here's what we know. Paul says in verse 28, we know. We know. Verse 26, no, notice this. I love the, the wording here, how Paul plays with these words. Verse 26, we do not know. What to pray for, as we ought. Some things we don't know. We don't know what to pray for. Verse 28, but we know this. Don't you love that? Here's what we know. God is working. God is working. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is another one of those. You're reading from a different translation than I am. You got something different here. And that's because scholars can't agree. They can't agree about, about how these words are expected to be used or expected to be translated. And so there's, it's hard to figure out what the, what the subject is. Uh, in the ESV that I'm reading from, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So the subject there is all things, the verb work together. It's pretty clear what the verb is, but all things work together. So, so that's the subject here. 
You may have a translation that switches it around and it says something like this. And we know, do you have one like this? We know God works all things together. I don't know what the, I don't know what the, I don't know what it's supposed to be. I don't think we can know for sure. But here's what we know. We know, we know what he's saying. Whether God is the subject from a grammatical standpoint or not, God is the subject of verse 28. We know that. God works all things together. And by the way, that word together there, man, probably has to do with, the God, with God and the Spirit working together. Again, there's, a, there's some... There's some um, a little bit of uncertainty here about, about the wording. But the best evidence here seems to suggest that the word together actually refers to the spirit of verse 27 and God in verse 28. And it doesn't mean so much that all things, though it does mean that, that's not its primary meaning, that all things come together. But rather it is God and the spirit working together to bring the all things to his desire, to God's desired end. That God and the Spirit, they're taking the groanings of our heart, they're taking the messiness of our existence and the tension of the already with the not yet, and they're, and they're, and they're taking all this, and God and the Spirit working together to take the all things and bring about the good in the end. <clears throat> Here's how we misuse this, though. <clears throat> Sometimes we think, what this means is that if you lose your job, that's bad. But it means God's got a better job for you. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that. Might mean God's got another job for you that pays less with more hassle for you, what it might mean. But the end, the end is the good. Doesn't mean God's going to get all this worked out in the next six months. Going to find you a job that's better than the last one you had, more money, less stress, all that. Might mean, it might mean God's got something else he's trying to teach you. Maybe trying to teach you some patience. Maybe trying to teach us not to depend on material things. We don't know what in the world God is doing. God, see, see, in context here, Paul is not promising some sort of God working all things out. It's going to be just, oh, it's going to be so awesome from a human perspective in six months or a decade from now for that matter. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, from an eternal perspective, when we get, when we get to the eschaton, when we get to that final day, when we, when we are there, we'll look back at this moment, at those moments of struggle and doubt and confusion and stress, the, the, the bad things, and we'll do something like this. Oh, I see it now. Now I know. Now I know. All things Work together. God works all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, you move on in the text. Paul is looking at this from an eternal perspective. When we wonder, it's all this tying together, all these are kind of synonymous ideas, but 
from an eternal perspective, we, we, we figure out, trying to figure out who's in control. So verses 29 and 30, Paul, Paul helps us to see. Here's the, who's the primary actor in all this stuff? You? Me? You, you and I, the primary actors and movers and de, the ones who determine our own destinies? Are, are, is that us? I hope not. I hope you and I aren't, aren't responsible for all this. If so, you're, you and I are in a big old mess. <clears throat> for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Notice what Paul's doing. I think, let, me, let me back up just for a second. I think Paul is trying to put himself in, in from the perspective of God who stands outside of time. And maybe you would say God who, who's outside of time looking at things from an eternal perspective after, the, after this whole world is finishes its purpose and God fixes everything and all that. On that day, here's what God says. Here's, here's the vantage point. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul has just finished saying that we're not going to be glorified until then. That's why I think Paul is trying to stand over here outside of time with God and look at the scope of things, the scope of your life and my life, the scope of the life, the, you know, the, the life of the world. And from that vantage point, God is saying, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified you. That's what God did. Usually when we struggle in prayer, when we, when we get confused and, and discouraged and all that, and that's a lot of humanity. I'm not saying that when you get to some spiritual point in this life, you'll, you'll get past that. I don't, I don't know. I think we'll groan to an extent uh, this whole life, you know. But, but during those times when we're groaning the loudest, perhaps, it is because we think all oh, this is, is up to us. I got to do this right, you know. I got to do this right. I got to make the right decision. Man, what is the right decision, Lord? I just don't know. I got to make the right decision about this. And I got to do the right. I got to fix this. I got to I got to do this and I got to do that and if I don't get it right, man, it's just going to be a mess. What Paul says at the end of it. Who's in control of all this? He stands outside of time and he says, "Here is what you're going to see on that day. You're going to look back and you're going to see God foreknew you and he called you and he justified you." And he, or he conformed you and he justified you and he, he, uh, he, he glorified you. That's what you're going to see. You're going to stand outside of time and you're going to recognize the hand of God in all this. So God is the primary mover and actor. He's the one who determines. He's the one who acts. He's the one who does. Our, our tendency as human beings is to be very human-centered, to be very us-centered and think, oh man, this is all up to me. I'm not saying your decisions don't matter. I'm not, we, don't, we don't take our responsibility out of this. It's just, you see what Paul is doing. He's saying the Spirit comes along and he helps us to pray. And then he helps us to know that God is working in the midst of all the messiness to bring about something good, ultimately. And then when we can stand at that day, we'll look back and we'll say, oh man, now I see God was in control all along. All along. I'll know that fully. I know it now a little bit, but I don't always believe it. You know, I'm guessing you're in the same boat. I believe it intellectually. I'll, I'll preach it and I'll teach it and we'll talk about it. I'll, I'll say, yeah, but, but there's, there's times, sometimes at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, 
I don't really believe it, you know. But we try to view it from that eternal kind of perspective. If you're not a Christian this morning, <clears throat> you know what we're talking about today. Everybody in here struggles. <clears throat> you're not a Christian, you struggle. <clears throat> if you are a Christian, you struggle. I think we ought to recognize that. You know, you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you become a Christian, try to walk with Him. God doesn't take away all your problems. But He helps you to see how He uses those problems <clears throat> to bring about the desired end. That's the thing. So if you're not a Christian, we invite you on His behalf, we believe. We invite you on His behalf to come to Him with faith and trust, throwing yourself, as it were, at His feet and saying to Him, Lord, I've made a mess of stuff. I've made a mess of everything. Um, but I'd like for you to be in control. I'd like, for you to, I'd like for you to take this mess and do with it whatever you will. That's what it means to become a Christian and, and to come to Him and say, I want to glorify you with my life, and from this point on, I'm going to try my best to do that. You confess Him as your Lord and Savior. You throw yourself at His feet. You turn away from your past, whatever that is, and you're baptized as a public expression of what God does in your heart as He washes your sins away by the blood that Jesus gave on the cross, and you can become a, a disciple of Jesus today, and we'd be thrilled to help you in that walk. Maybe you need to come back to him today and ask for prayers of your church family here, fellow Christians. We'll do what we can to help you spiritually. Let's stand and sing. If you need to come forward, I hope